Welcome to episode 255 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Well, we did it. We gave away some books. We had a contest, and emails are going out to all of our winners. And we loved it so much that we've decided we're just going to make this a regular pattern. This is going to be our new jam is yes. giving away some books. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've, we've talked before about how uh, we have such generous listeners and some of our generous listeners have committed to supporting the show every month. And one of the things that we're able to do now is we're able to give away some free books. So we're going to give you some more details next week about how these contests are going to work. They will not be as complicated as this last contest, I promise. (laughs) So, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, but uh, we're excited to get some good resources into the hands of our listeners. Listen, our listener, listeners, they are good Calvinists or Augustinians in that they persevered. Those that enter, they persevered to the end. They satisfied all the requirements. I think as you coined the phrase, the what, what do we say that the actual contest was by works, it's but true. in God's sovereignty, many of them will be delivered. Actually, not many, just three of them will just be delivered. Yeah, Excellent the- reading. The 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 uh, way was narrow, <laughs> so not many found the way onto books. That's very true. So speaking of finding the way, we're going to find our way eventually to a topic today, which is going to be about God's common grace and the merits and work of Christ in that common grace, or yes. are there no merits of Christ in that common grace of God? So we're going to talk about that, and this came from another listener question that we recently received. So keep sending those questions in. We love them because they give us sometimes really nice foil for topic and conversation. But of course, we've got to bury that lead for just a second and get to those good affirmations and denials. So Tony, kick us off. So this this uh, affirmation here takes a little bit of setup. Uh, I'm affirming being known for being positive about something. So so often in our context, especially I think as as Christians as Christians, full stop. But as Christians online, especially, we're kind of known for what we're against, and you don't you don't often hear people characterized by what they're advocating for or what they're advocating uh, constructively. And so this takes a little bit of setup to, to introduce the scenario. Try to get past, dear listener, the specifics, because I understand there are those even in our audience that would disagree with with certain things on this. But I work in a medical institution. I've mentioned that many times. And one of the things that has been common in medical institutions for as long as I've been a part of it is mandatory flu vaccines, right? So it's interesting when when businesses and stuff start talking about mandating vaccinations for COVID for their employees, because the people who most of the people who work in the medical system kind of shrug their shoulders and like I've been having to get flu shots and mandatory vaccines as long as I've worked at the institution I have. So on one level, it's kind of no big deal for us. But as you might imagine, when uh, our institution announced that they were making uh, COVID vaccination mandatory for as a condition of employment, uh, there were some people in the community who were not happy with that. And so very quickly, a group of people uh, formed kind of a protest line that has been there now for probably close to a month. And every day they come out there and they They've got signs that say like no force vaccination, no, no force shots, freedom of medical bodily rights or whatever. And you know what? They have their right to protest. I think they're wrong in this specific com- you know situation. I don't 
Um, I don't affirm broad government mandated vaccinations, but I affirm that in a healthcare situation, you have to do certain things differently that the general population might not. Well, I can tell you that that was something that was really kind of disruptive for a lot of employees. Well, now there's a group of people who stand on the opposite corner. And I remarked that this was a little bit ironic. So you have on one corner, you have this no forced vaccination protest going on. On the opposite corner is like the remnants of a sign that was put up during COVID that was like, thank you, healthcare heroes. And it's all like fallen down and decrepit. And so like employees have to drive past these people that are basically protesting our workplace past the sign, this like busted up old set of signs that was celebrating our our like heroic efforts during COVID. I don't think it was particularly heroic, but whatever. But now there's been a sort of group of counter protesters that have formed on that other side by where that sign used to be. And all they're doing, they're holding up signs that are supporting Dartmouth-Hitchcock employees, right? There's signs that are like, we love you, thank you, like signs that are basically saying like, we recognize that this pandemic has been harder on people who work in the medical in, um, medical industry than than other other industries in a lot of ways. And, and I've noticed the sign, the group of people that are protesting against these forced vaccinations they're kind of lackluster. It's, it's the group is smaller than it was. It's like, nobody really is paying much attention to them, but the group of people who just have this positive thing of like, we appreciate you. Here's, here's why we appreciate you. That's growing and it's getting momentum. And it got me thinking like, how often are we characterized as like the people who are protesting something rather than the people who are out there sharing a, I don't mean positive in like those happy sunshines, but like positive in terms of like, it's a positive message as in you're advocating something rather than just advocating against something or anti advocating something. So I'm affirming uh, that sort of first category. And I think as people, as Christians, kind of like we um, talked uh, before last week, like we, a lot of times spend our time sort of defending things. We talked about that right. with this Hebrews passage. Like we, we come at this passage and most of our experience of this passage is trying to respond to somebody trying to use it against us. And I think we would all do better as, uh, as Christians, as reformed Christians to be more focused on the positive advocating for things. So rather than just, and don't hear me wrong, like I I'm opposed to abortion. I'm opposed to all these other social issues that are going on in our culture, then we all know what they are. But rather than just being known for being the people who protest abortion or protest whatever it is, if we were also known and more known for people who are are positively preaching the gospel, and then I don't mean like the watered down gospel that some of the more like social justice oriented people preach. I mean like the real gospel. If we were really known for being a people who went out there trying to snatch those who were perishing out of the fire like Jude commands, I think that the world's experience of Christians and therefore the Christian's experience of the response from the world would be very different. It might be more hostile to be honest with you, like it might be more right. of a difficult place for us to be, but I think that that would be a much more effective approach for all of us. So I'm affirming that sort of positive being known for what you're for instead of being known for what you're against kind of a, a posture that I think we need to take a little bit more. That was heavy. I mean, there's no doubt, like you're saying, we should probably do more of leading in with the gospel, like just getting after that gospel truth. And maybe uh, at least like there are oftentimes, of course, we, like you said, we have to draw a line in the sand. We need to make sure that our position and our convictions are well known. And that requires taking a stance that in some ways is negative. I mean, we're about to go into yeah. denials, so we're not against denials or denying against something. 
but it's that ability to connect that thing that you're denying with the positivity of the gospel presentation. And and not just in such a way where it's like, well, let me bend this and turn this around and talk about God's grace in my life. But like that gospel is the wellspring from which all positive and negative stances come from. And when you disassociate it from that thing, then it becomes, in many people's eyes, either legalistic or it becomes just antagonistic and really let the gospel be offensive. But there's so much, of course, beauty in that gospel that God's going to use that, like you said, to just snatch some people up. So I guess we should be more about the snatching by way of the gospel. Gospel snatch. Yeah, and even even like in in our own like internal intramural debates, like I, and again, I've spent a ton of time arguing against the eternal functional subordination of the son, but there's a very different uh, posture and a very different way of doing things. If I spend most of my time arguing for the orthodox Nicene position on the Trinity, I actually build a much stronger case and a much more persuasive case than all than if all I do is spend time taking apart and and dismantling the For arguments sure. against my position. Both of those things have their place, but uh, I, the times that I've really convinced someone to change their mind about a topic is the time where I spend building my case rather than just tearing down someone else's. Again, both things have their time, but I just think we would do well to to maybe think about the balance of our interactions and how often we spend in that positive posture versus that negative posture. For sure. And love has such a big way in that, doesn't it? Like, I mean, it sounds corny and cliche, but I I think that's obviously because it's true. It's, it's tact. It's not having a tin ear towards your brother and sister. It's all the things we talked about before promoting and coming into that discussion with charity first. I just think still like the internet for the Christian is like the wild West when it comes to intramural debates, because we just can't do it kindly most of the time. And it devolves so quickly into name calling, dropping the H bomb, or just yeah. getting mad and upset where you're just talking past one another. That is for both sides. Like everybody yeah. needs to come to it saying, this is my family. We're going to have a conversation in love. And I mean, that I think really should be the thing that, that shapes us. It's like, you know, people misinterpreted the idea of being salt as like Christians should just be salty. And a lot yeah. of times that's, I think the impression is people yeah. think Christians are just salty. Yeah. And that's really too bad because if of all people in all walks of life, from all worldviews, we should really be the most amicable, the most loving, the most gracious, the most charitable. And I think you can be charitable and still be able to draw stark lines around what you believe. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive, but we kind of treat it, you know, some people, especially some reformed Christians are kind of like, if I'm not making somebody mad, I'm not drawing a hard enough line. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people say that. I've heard people argue, you know, it kind of even goes back to like that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote where he says, like, if you're not accused of being an antinomian on a pretty regular basis, (laughs) then you're probably not (laughs) preaching the gospel. Right. I'm like, I just, I don't, I feel like if I'm being accused of error regularly, then maybe I should rethink the way I'm doing things. Yes. Um, yeah. So in, in light of being positive and having a positive posture, what are you affirming today, Jesse? Yeah, that was a great segue. Segway was full of love and charity. So I've got to back us down into my mundane affirmation from your high and lifted up spiritual one. So we're all thirsty people. And we should definitely be about gulping down that living water, which of course, the fount of which is Jesus Christ himself, his death, burial, resurrection, and glorious life. In addition, though, we also just need H2O sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time. So I'm affirming almost all the time, almost all the time. It is necessary for this temporal life in as much as the living water is necessary for that eternal life. So get some. 
I'm affirming with a water bottle, a particular water bottle. This water bottle is made by a company called Owala, O-W-A-L-A. And here's what I like about it. It's got all the custom standard, all the standard features, like it's insulated, all that good stuff. They have a particular one called the Free Sip. Here's what I love about this water bottle. I'm going to try to describe it so you can envision in your mind's eye what this sucker looks like. So it's got one of those kind of like sporty screw on tops and it has basically a spout. But here's the beauty. There's a little twist of engineering in here that I find so delightful. The spout has a straw embedded in it. So you can either sip from this thing or you can pull your head back like, you know, 180 degrees and drink from it like a normal spouted water bottle. But it's got both. So you don't look like a fool in like a meeting if you want to take a sip and you're down to like the last lower level of the (laughs) bottle. Because I always feel like there's no cool, there's no cool way to drink from a straw, especially if you're a dude. It just doesn't make you look manly. Yeah, it's true. This is subtle because the straw is embedded in the spout, you actually would not even know it's there. So this is fantastic. Also, to a lesser extent, I'm affirming this because I'm the kind of person, maybe like you, Tony, where you're reading, you're studying, and you're thirsty because you're just working that brain hard. You're parched, but you don't want to interrupt your eyesight from what you're reading. And if I have to sip from a normal glass, I have to do that to put my head back. This you don't have to. Now, I know that's also just like what a straw does. But this is so much better. So it's called the Free Sip. If you go to awalalife.com, you can find this thing. They are not a sponsor, but they should be because this is this should be like the water bottle for readers, studiers, thinkers. It's true. You know where I'm not going to put the link to that? In the show notes. Because <laughs> I never do. I never do. So I'm not going to say I will. There are no show notes, so that's why you will not find this there. But yeah, it's a small thing, but I've, I just got this water bottle recently. My wife got it first, then I was stealing hers. That's how you know you kind of like something is yeah. when you want to covet it. And so uh, to, to save myself from you know all kinds of condemnation for disobeying part of the 10 words of the Decalogue, I was like, <laughs> I, I just need to get this water bottle for myself. So I, I, I'm sure maybe there are people out there that are kind of sewers of water bottles. I think this is like top five for me. It's it's pretty nice. And you can drink. Oh, here's the other thing is this spout is wide enough that I don't have to take off the top to refill it. So we have like one of those little just Brita water filters that you just, you know, pour water. You don't have to take this thing off. So it's like it's really super convenient in a first world kind of way. Nice. Nice. I like first world things. It's okay to It's okay to like nice stuff. This is a blessing. In fact, I would probably go as far to say to anticipate a bit. It's a common grace. <laughs> so this is a really fantastic common grace kind of water bottle. So let's uh, get a little bit negative before we yes. get hopefully more positive. What are you denying? So I, I feel like I've been on this, this train for the last like year and a half, probably. <laughs> uh, I'm just denying conspiratorial thinking, right? Oh, so get some, I, I'm, I'm learning to just walk away from these conversations. Walking away from conversations is not my love language or my strong suit. So I don't always do it, but I, I'm learning to. But I had an interaction online, you know, somebody talking about uh, CDC data or something like that. And the common like, well, they control the flow of information, which, yeah, they do. Like, that that's true. The CDC makes determinations about what data they publish and what data they don't. Okay, I get it. Yes, there might be some data that they should have published or could have published that they maybe haven't published that people may think contradicts their other data. Like everybody is selective about what data they put out into the world, right? Um, And and then someone comes into the conversation who actually is a scientist, a Christian scientist, a brother in Christ who is doing research in a research laboratory on COVID-19. 
and he shares things that he has learned and things that he's researched, direct knowledge of these experiments. And the response is, well, you know, you, you're just part of the system. You're part of the mechanic that's that's uh, censoring the data. And the thing about the thing specifically about conspiracy theory thinking that I'm denying today is it's just so intellectually lazy. Like it's it's so so lazy because all you do is when someone presents evidence that's contrary to your perspective or contrary to your thesis, you just make that evidence of the conspiracy. So, so I guess maybe this is like a twofold thing. Like I'm denying that and maybe I'm giving people a little bit of advice that I should learn to follow. You can't reason with a conspiracy theorist. You can't, it's not possible because if you make a good argument, you make a good point that now becomes evidence, not contrary to their theory, but actually evidence supporting their theory, making you part of the conspiracy. So I'm just denying it. It's lazy. It's, it's foolish. Um, you know, the Bible actually says like not to get involved in conspiracy thinking. I mean, I know that's a, right. that passage in Isaiah is a very specific application, but, but God condemns conspiracy theory thinking because in most cases it's actually just buying into lies as though they were truth. It's, it's postulating these scenarios that really just can't feasibly happen. I mean, what we, in order to believe that this is going on, we'd have to have thousands and thousands of research scientists that are somehow all in on the same, same conspiracy to suppress data. And, and then like what? And like, nobody is, nobody is slipped and accidentally, shared that, like shared that information. I mean, like I can't even write an email to somebody at work without getting the wrong person attached to it. Have to apologize for sending them something <laughs> that they have nothing, that have nothing to do with y yet. Somehow we've got thousands of, of research scientists and politicians and CEOs of major companies and all these things. And nobody's accidentally sent an email to the wrong person. Nobody's accidentally, you know, left a voicemail on somebody's on the wrong phone number or hit print to the wrong printer somewhere. I mean, there's, there's literally like thousands, Thousands of ways that this information, if this conspiracy is as big as it seems like it must be, there's thousands of ways for that information to like accidentally make its way out there. I mean, like even like Fauci's emails, they're all public now. And although there is some stuff in there that makes him look really bad and some things that are perhaps, you know, perhaps we're not as transparent as we would have liked. There's not some grand conspiracy that would have been found in these emails. Like if right. if anything, he's the architect of this thing, right? So he he would have some sort of emails in there directing people how to suppress data and which specific data sets to depress, suppress. Like it just isn't. It's just not real. It just isn't. So I'm denying the thought. I'm also saying, you know, I'm denying myself. Maybe I shouldn't get involved in those kinds of conversations because I know you can't you can't really reason with those people who are thinking this way. So yeah, I I just. I mean, I know some people that are wrapped up in these things that are are otherwise smart people, and and I'm sure everybody has their own reasons for holding the positions they do, but it, it just gets frustrating and a little tiresome. Yeah, I totally hear that. I think everything you said is really good advice. We all should be reminded of that from time to time. At the end of the day, if nothing else, that kind of thing is a massive distraction no matter what, right? Yeah. So like this kind of thing with everything that's happening with COVID is in some ways, I feel like to me is like the theological equivalent of getting like too caught up in demonology or eschatology. Right. Like there's always yeah. that one person that's like so distracted by whether or not 
the locusts are actual choppers. Yeah. That you're like the gospel even falls aside and they just get so fixated on that. And it becomes all about that. And like every time you talk about something, it always comes back somehow to like eschatology and whether yeah. such and such a person is the antichrist and how what's happening with Israel right now is a uh, portends, you know, the final coming of Christ. It's just, a distraction and it yeah. does get tiring. That's a good way to say it. Sometimes the most charitable and loving thing to do is walk away. And sometimes I think that's because you know, you're sparing yourself from a worse testimony by engaging yeah. it. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of is like, um, like the Bible code. Do you remember the Bible code? Oh, I mean, yeah. I know you had good Christian education cause I, I know who your dad is and I know he was a good <laughs> teacher and, that's right. Or like um, that thing in the genealogies where like if you interpret people's names in a certain way, it's actually like a gospel message. I see that I'm like, you're putting so much effort into trying to find these hidden meanings and these hidden codes. Like, why don't you just read the gospel? Like, if you're really that interested in finding out what God has to say about the gospel in Genesis, like just read the beginning of Matthew. Like you don't have to do these fanciful things. And that's what it sounds like. It's like, rather than just look at what's really in front of people, right? they're looking, people are looking for all these like hidden meanings and hidden things behind the scenes. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess like some conspiracy theories are true. Yeah. That like, that's a fact. Some people theorize about conspiracies and they turn out to be true, but that's, that's not the typical scenario. So yeah, I just think you're right. It's a big distraction. It's a, it's a waste of time. It's kind of buying into a lie in most cases. It's propagating a lie in most cases. So it's just not, it's just not something I think Christians should be swept up in. And yet it seems like Christians right now are like more swept up in this stuff than, than they ever have been, which is I mean, it's really, it's really easy to be swept up in it. This is oh, yeah. kind of like adventures in Romans one. It strikes me that this is like the natural man's discontent with what God uses as ordinary means. We just always right. want to look for something that's extraordinary, even in the scriptures itself. So when we get that admonishment to not get crazy with genealogies, not get caught up in all these right. like lesser issues or try to read more into things than are there. Again, that's God being so kind to us and being like, if you want to look for me, if you want to look for my work, like it's plain and simple in many ways. Not that it's not complex with respect to all the nuances that are happening, but it's simple in the sense that he's just always using ordinary things and ordinary means. Yeah. We're just not satisfied with that stuff. We always want to see what's more complicated. We always want to overreach with respect to our interpretation of what's going on. Yeah. And I'm with you. Like, just mathematically speaking, your point is super strong because most conspiracy theories are improbable. It takes right. a lot of work to get somebody to come on board with that, so to speak, and to try to prove or vet that this is what's happening. And then beyond that, most often there's not enough evidence to actually bring it forward, but that becomes then the reinforcement for why it's true, which is a weird backwards way of applying yeah. logic. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. So what about you? What are you denying today? All right. I'm going to keep this quick because all I'm doing with this denial is I'm taking out a previous denial and I'm just putting it in the microwave and heating it back up again because I just can't get off of it. And I wasn't going to go this route, but then you sent me something this morning that fueled my denying oh, against. I've, I've got denials for days against this and it's just coming back again. Here's the thing. I'm just denying against once again, memorialism in the Lord's Supper, like yes. st straight up the more and part of what you fueled it this morning by sending me a book, which I eventually want to review. I started reading already because it seemed like to be the perfect, like answer to my question, which by the way, how'd you come across this book? I don't even remember. I think I saw somebody was posting it on Facebook and I was like, this is the book Jesse's been looking for. 
Yeah, this, this is literally it. This is literally the book. It, it, the title is literally addressing the specific all the yeah. way down to the nuance question I was asking yep. and wanting some answers to. So, and we did a whole series, as many will recall, on the Lord's Supper. And so this isn't challenging what we talked about there. It's just reinforcing. But what really stirred me up and got me fired up is I went to you know the London Confession of Faith, the London Baptist, and then also the Westminster. And I looked just again to double check what the language was around the Lord's Supper to see if there's some specific language there. And of course there is. And of course it's amazing. And basically just affirming again that there's... Believers are receiving through faith these benefits of Christ's death, that right. the Lord's Supper is actually nourishing our souls. It causes growth in Christ, and it's a bond and a pledge of believers' communion with Christ, why we call it communion, and that worthy receivers spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death through faith, and that Christ is spiritually present in the supper. When I saw that again, I was like, What? I was just like, I I could, you know, and like, listen, I, I would love to go in and crush straight up, destroy icons, Zwingli style as much as the next guy. I just can't get behind Zwingli on this at all. And the more you look at this, at least for me, the more I'm like, and why are we not doing this every week? Like, why, why are we, why? I don't know. I was just kind of like, man, I need to let myself sink into this kind of truth. So I'm, I'm reading more on this in terms of like. The question I want to be able to clearly articulate, I have lots of thoughts around this, but this is where this book is going to answer. And maybe we'll jump into it in a future episode would be, but when we say this is a means of grace, why, what is happening explicitly, specifically yeah. that's causing this to be a means of grace? I just think that even maybe the standard reform Christian, uh, including myself or especially myself is not thinking about like this nourishment that's happening here, that, that this is like a crazy, amazing thing that we're receiving benefit from in a very profound and real way, though it's not the corporate presence, the real way. And so I'm just kind of like, man, modern evangelicalism has just watered this thing down. It's, it's become a tag on an add on something that maybe is an addendum or appended to our services where it should be front and center. And it's almost like if this is what you're getting, it's like, you know, what Peter's saying, like, not just my feet, Lord, but wash everything. Yeah. Like, I, you almost want to say this here, like, how often can I take this thing? Because yeah. th- I really want to make sure that I'm being nourished. So yeah. that was a the short denial that turned into a long one. I just thought of a really good analogy. Well, not just thought of it. I, we <laughs> okay. Today is the first Sunday of the month. Our church celebrates the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. And our pastor today preached a sermon specifically about the Lord's Supper, which it's not always the case on Lord's Supper Sunday. He sometimes he does. This week it was like unpacking the actual theology of the Lord's Supper a little bit more than he usually does. And so I was thinking about this during the sermon, you know, because I'm I'm thinking through not only what he's saying, but also connecting it to other things. What do you think about this for an analogy for the way that the sign and the thing signified connects, right? So All right, hit me. So a lot of times we try to connect this to like a stop sign, like there's the sign or like a road sign, like there's sure. the sign and that points to, the, to your destination and you Ace but base. I was thinking more. Yeah. It, he, I saw the sign. Um, it opened up my eyes and I saw the sign. Um, so here's what I was thinking is think of an elevator, right? You okay. walk up to an elevator and the doors slide open. You walk in and it's this box that you're standing in. Right. And you push a button and you trust that when you push that button, this box is going to raise up into the air and move you up or down according to the button you push. So so there's a sign, right? There's the button that says up or push the floor that you think you're going to. You have to you have to trust that that actually is going to happen. Right. I've been in elevators where like you push the button, it goes the wrong direction because something's wrong. Right. So 
you walk in there, you see the sign, you, you open up your eyes and you see the sign <laughs> and then you, in faith, obviously like it's a very different kind of faith in faith, you push this button. And then right. because of that faith, you participate in this, this reality of going up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it maybe is a little stretch, but I, I mean, no, I'm trying to think good. of like when we, when we participate in the sign of the, the sign of the Lord's supper. Right. We get Jesus. Like we get, we actually yes. get Jesus. It's not, it's, we're not just remembering him. We're not just thinking about him. We're not even just proclaiming him. We actually get Jesus in the supper, but we don't get him by means of our carnal senses by putting him in our mouth and taking him into our body. Right. We get him by means of participating in this sign and through faith and participation in that sign, we get the reality that that sign points right. to. So I think, I think I'm, I'm glad you're looking at this. It's funny because you, you asked me like, what's a good book for this subject? And I was struggling. Like I couldn't find anything out there that was real specific. And then I came across this today. And I was like, oh, great. Somebody just filled a gap in the market. So I was like, here, Jesse, you need this book. Yeah. So I'm pretty stoked for you to read it and hear your reflections on it. Yeah, I think it's, it's going it, to be good. It's a short read too. I'm already like, a, you just sent me a link this morning and I was like, oh yeah, Amazon, what a time to be alive. <laughs> so I'm already like, you know, two chapters deep in the Kindle version. So we'll, I'm purposely withholding the name of the book until like yes. maybe a future episode where we can talk a little bit more about really yeah. fleshing that out. I like the elevator. And not only is that a pretty good metaphor in terms of sign, things signify, the faith that's required, but... I like the idea of it taking you up because again, as we said before, it's more appropriate that you are brought up into the heavens to be seated with Christ, so to speak, with this meal, right. rather than him having to come down in some kind of physical form and meet you at the table. Right. Our Lutherans in residence are like, no, no, that's the point. He comes down to us. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. They're all mad at you because you said that. They're never going to, they probably don't hear this. I don't think they listen to the show anymore or at so. all. I don't think so either. But, you know, I, but again, you can at least, like we talked about before, we can respect that idea with respect to the idea right. that, um, I just said that like in a really redundant kind of way that there is something more than just memorialism. So I'm, I'm even more like, okay, like, yeah, I'd, in other words, I would prefer to have conversations toward that end than the other side, which is just, right. you know, this is kind of some spiritual ritual that we participate in because God wants us to remember him. If we don't right. do this, we won't give him enough pause in our lives to remember, you know, as if it, there's no difference between this, so to speak, and making sure, I don't know, that you celebrate Thanksgiving once a year right. because that's your time to slow down and make sure that you express gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, we should probably get into our topic, huh? Yeah, let's do it. So this, again, like I said, has been born out of a question from a listener. We have the greatest brothers and sisters who listen to this podcast and are willing to throw some questions at us. And let's just get right into it because this is a really great question. And I'm going to summarize it this way. The question in front of us is, is God's common grace an extension of the merits and the work of Christ or are his common acts of things like clemency, patience, and goodness done apart from the grace of Christ? I mean, I guess we could phrase this as what is the role of what Christ has accomplished in common grace? And we're going to quote a bunch of scripture, I would presume, because that's our style. But one of the scriptures that was associated with this was something from Matthew 8 in Jesus' ministry of healing. And so the question was here, of course, we have Christ healing. And unless every person that he held, he, he held? He held some people while he healed them, for sure. Of all the people <laughs> that he healed, 
if some of them were not elect, then how do we kind of marry up this idea that he's providing this physical restoration and that it is, of course, in some ways connected to him as the son of God. And yet at the same time, it's not efficacious with respect to salvation or if it's not salvific right. or they're not elect. So let's start. Let me just clear the table a little bit, not the Lord's table, but just our table. Let's clear that by saying that when we talk about common grace, and you have talked about this before, we want to stand against, for good reason, in the gospel against the Arminian perspective. So when we're talking about it, what we have in mind is those kind of general operations of the Holy Spirit where without renewing the heart, he's exercising a moral influence on man so that sin is either restrained or there's some kind of order maintained in social life or there's civil righteousness is promoted or those general blessings which God imparts to all men without any distinction as he sees fit. So we're not denying that people can do what seems like reasonably good things. We're talking about common grace in that way. Does not make you, does not give you any ability, of course, to accept or quote unquote reject the gospel, just merely that it's present out there. So that's, that's like the whole backdrop here. So where do you want to begin on this bad boy? Because this is a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think just to sort of tack on to what you just said, I think sometimes we can get into trouble in reformed theology by being too obsessed with like technical definitions of things. Technical definitions are good. Technical definitions are my love language, but we <laughs> we can get too bogged down on justification means this and only this and only ever means this, right? When we run into problems in the scripture because the word justification is used in a variety of ways, right? Or sanctification sometimes sometimes is used that way. We run into that in just the history of doctrine. When you read, sometimes Calvin talks about regeneration, but he's actually talking about what we call sanctification. And it makes him look like he's saying regeneration comes after faith when at the same time we know that Calvin and those following him from that regeneration precedes faith. So the the one thing I want to make sure we kind of land on is that grace doesn't always mean redemptive grace. Right. right? Exactly. So so sometimes people will object to the the concept of common grace because they want to look at grace as though all all that grace means and all that it can ever mean is somehow something that contributes to salvation. It's God's gracious act in salvation and that's all that grace means. In reality, grace, and I think we get there because sometimes we say like, well, grace is not just unmerited favor, but it's demerited favor. You know, we have these other kinds of like slogans and technical definitions that we apply to it. In reality, grace in the Bible, the word grace just means gift, right? Sometimes you give a gift to somebody who who you don't particularly like, right? Some, sometimes like a gift is not is not always even a sign of your own positive disposition towards them, right? If you have a coworker that you don't particularly get along with, you don't particularly like, but they have a retirement party and the, the etiquette is to give a gift. You're going to come and say like this person, we're giving this person a gift and we're giving them to it for a particular reason, even though it's not really evidence of my disposition towards them. Right. And so when people object to common grace as a concept because they want to say something like, well, it's great that God makes the rain shine, a rain fall on the the just and the unjust, but that can't be called grace because for the for the unjust it's actually used as condemnation later. Well, that kind of denies this idea that like God can do things for a multitude of reasons. Right? He he can we can at the same time say, and, and I think this will get to some of what we talk about later, we can say that God's kindness is meant to lead all people to to repentance, 
Right. But at the same time, say that God does not intend to lead all people to repentance. Right. Right. As Calvinists, we have to understand that sometimes there's there's uh, concepts in the scripture that we have to either nuance in a particular way, or we have to understand that there's just a real tension that we don't always get. Um, it's funny because this is something that's so much more common in modern thinking than it, it was in previous eras. You see this a lot when people want to say like, um, we can't say that Jesus died for all, or we can't, we can't preach to someone that, um, Jesus died for you because we don't know if that person's elect and if they're not elect, then because of limited atonement, he didn't die for them. That's not something that any of the Westminster divines ever really, really thought about or cared about, right? They, they, uh, Samuel Rutherford would commonly preach to open crowds. Christ is dead for you or Christ died for you. Right. So we have to understand this tension. So I think this question, um, is a really good question because it forces us to grapple with some of that tension. And I think as we look through this passage, we look through the scriptures here, we're going to see that sometimes God does things for multiple reasons. Right. Um, you know, just to sort of like throw it out there, it's very possible that all the people Jesus healed were elect. And of I'm actually going to make the argument that they were, but it's also possible that God was, was healing them for a different reason, for a different, uh, a different perspective or a different a different outcome than what we might right. necessarily associate it with. Right. And we also have to be careful because like you said, if we parse that out too much, we're going to presume on the kindness of God. We know right. that he is kind and loving and the scriptures are very, very clear. Like you said, in quoting from both the new and the old Testament about even the fact that people who need rain, all people who need rain or get access to rain aren't necessarily elect. And the same, like the sun shining, the weather being, you know, particularly amicable toward our particular end, all of that is the kindness of God. And that outworking of that kindness is like in his character in, in this respect, in his creative ability. So there's like, yeah. in other words, I don't know this, how to say this in any other way, but like kind of nerdy financial terms, all these positive externalities, you know, God is so big, so grand that actually he is blessing. He is bringing about his gracious work in the world, even to those for whom he is not calling onto himself because he is just that good. That, right. That's just part of a part and parcel for who he is. So we're used to, like you're saying, thinking of like the work of redemption wrought by Christ it is naturally coupled or connected to the application of that redemption to the hearts and the lives of sinners by the special operation right. of the Holy Spirit. We're not, we're not we're saying that does exist. But in addition to that, and I guess I'm kind of tipping my hand here already, while Christ died for the purpose of saving only the elect, nevertheless, like the whole human race, including the impenitent and the reprobate, derive great benefits from that same death. Right. The blessings of common grace may be regarded as indirect results of the atoning work of Christ. And so I think that's something that we just need to keep somewhere in the back of our minds that God is always being gracious and kind and good. And as longtime listeners will know from our conversations, one of the, the tests that you can, I think, apply here is we need to always be remember, be quick to remember that when God is working, all of the Trinity is working as well. Right. We, we always speak of, there's certainly appropriate to speak of the economy of the Trinity in terms of like particular focus or emphasis, but when God works, all of the Trinity works. And so right. by that definition alone, what we're already saying is that, yes, in this work of common grace, there is somewhere in there the merits of Christ. I think we're going to actually make that argument even stronger as we go on because we can't run away from it. We're going to see right. it present in this particular passage. But yeah. that, yes, we are seeing the work of Christ here in common grace because by default, all of God's work involves all of God. Yeah. And I, I might say that a little differently. I might, I might, um, how dare you? 
I, I probably would want to limit the atonement to specifically to salvific benefits, but that doesn't mean that the same, the same positive disposition, right? John three sixteen, God so loved the world. I'm not of the opinion that John means God so loved the elect that he gave his only son. He oh, loved sure. the whole world. And for so sure. because he loved the whole world, he took this positive action to save some of it. Right. Rather than burn it all and destroy it all, he saved some of it and he's redeeming the creation through his salvation of the elect. I, so I, I, I think I would nuance it in saying Christ. I don't think that Christ obtained common grace. I don't think that Christ had to obtain common grace in the atonement in sort of this transactional way that we might think about the atonement itself more. And, and you know, I, I think about it this way, too. One more like thought on the idea of like sometimes God is blesses people or is kind and gracious to people. And then his kindness is then actually used as their condemnation. Think of like an employer, like a, a supervisor who has an employee who struggles with attendance, right? That, that supervisor could punish them. You know, every, every company that I've ever worked for has an attendance policy. And as soon as you violate that policy, you're subject to disciplinary action, whether or not your supervisor actually exercises that discipline action on the first time they could or not isn't relevant. They could. And right. so you may have a supervisor who recognizes for whatever reason, yeah, you, this employee is just really struggling to get to work on time. I'm not going to just throw the book at them the, the first time that I'm able. But nevertheless, when that boss does reach a point where they no longer can tolerate the attendance issues, all of the times that they didn't throw the book at them actually serve to reinforce the final decision to let that employee go or to discipline them or whatever the outcome might be right so that kindness was genuine kindness the fact right. that that supervisor didn't call that person in their office and light them up and write them up the very first time that the policy allowed them to that's genuine kindness that's genuine forbearance but when that when that manager reaches the end of their ability to be kind and to be forbearing then all of that kindness is now actually evidence. It's actually evidence. And I think I think there's a similar situation going on here with God where he extends his kindness, he extends his kindness, he extends his kindness, and it's real genuine kindness. It's real genuine mercy that he does right. not snuff out the reprobate the, the second that they commit sin or that he did not snuff out all of creation at the moment that Adam, that's genuine kindness. But the fact that those reprobates still genuinely and of their own volition remain opposed to God, that is now on the last day, the, the evidence of the final verdict that God, that God delivers to say, no, this person is, is off to the darkness, off to, to eternal punishment. And so I think if we can get that in our head and understand that a genuinely kind action can still later on be considered something that is evidence that the person is recalcitrant and is not repented, right. then I think that this question actually sort of like opens up a little bit because now we don't necessarily have to try to parse out where all the people that Jesus healed elect were they all were they all was there only saved people that jesus healed or not well we don't have to parse that out we don't have to try to think about that anymore because jesus can still do kind things he can still do beneficial things for people who would still ultimately reject him um he did all sorts of kind things for people who would ultimately reject him. right he came to his own and his own did not receive him well that that doesn't just mean like the incarnation he came to his own in creating the universe and making sure that people have food to eat in continuing to allow people's hearts to beat every single one of those things 
is an act of God's kindness and an act of God's forbearance that eventually will have its, its terminal point where God no longer exercises his prerogative to be patient and merciful and kind on the people who reject him. Yeah, right on. And because we know, again, that uh, from the beginning, not only was Christ present, but he was present in all of creation. Even there, we're finding, well, if there's any common grace in God's creation, that means that Jesus had some involvement in that, a direct involvement. It wasn't just derivative. And you're right. We often forget that in John 3.16, the word world is cosmos. So it's not just, we're not saying worlds in like people group. It's actually in all of creation. God loved all of it so much that he wanted to right. redeem that. This idea of creation groaning out is in some ways like intertextually connected to that passage in the sense that God was coming because he loved all things, all things that he made. He was in such love with, such concern and compassionate love over that he sent his son. That loving of the world led to him giving. And so you've already touched on one of the things I got to, wanted to mention, but you just stole everything from me, which was one of the effects of common grace, the really traditional one, the first one, which is basically the execution of the sentence of death on man is deferred. So like right right away, we see that in the garden, but then to officially quote what you already mentioned from Romans chapter two, Paul writes, or do you not presume or sorry, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So just to like add a little bit of buttress to what you're saying there, here it's clear that Paul's saying, listen, God's kindness is just straight kindness. No ulterior motive there. He's just being kind. What is storing up the wrath is what you are doing in not recognizing that that kindness is meant to lead you into this sense of humiliation and repentance so that the work of Christ may restore you in a way that takes away the judgment that is due you and again, places it squarely on Christ himself. So it's like all the gifts of God are evidence really of his paternal goodness. Yet as he often has a different object in view, I think that's kind of what you were saying, the ungodly like absurdly congratulate themselves on like their prosperity as though they have God's favor, favor while he kindly and bountifully supports them in common grace. So all these things can exist. Like they're not mutually exclusive categories. We see this kindness and it is, I like what you're saying. Let's not get it twisted and think that somehow like God is like twisting his mustache. He's like, I'm going to be kind to them because in the end it's going to come back. They're not even going to see it coming Uh, We're meant to see that this is a way that leads us to the cross, not away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes people do have that idea of God that like he's doing these things that appear outwardly kind and outwardly merciful but he's only doing them for the purpose of justifying his condemnation for people. And in some, some to be fair, like in some reformed theological um, like schemas that actually makes some sense because, you know, we, if you go back to our discussion about superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism on superlapsarianism, God, God chooses some people to be separated from him for eternity, irrespective of the fact that they would sin because the fall is not in view. And so then he ordains the fall or he decrees the fall as a means to justify their separation from him. Right. So, so it's not too far of a stretch to then extend that same logic and character of God into creation where God is now continuing that act of good things, right? Creating these people was a good, was a kind thing to them. Presumably it's kinder to allow someone to exist than not to exist. Right. Although you could make the argument that maybe it would be kinder not to allow them to exist if they're going into condemnation. Right. So, so 
I think we have to kind of think about that and we have to say that because not everyone coming from a reform perspective, of course, like the twirling their mustache, like that character, we wouldn't think of God that way, but not everyone coming from a reform perspective is going to share that commitment that God is genuinely doing good to people, not for the purpose of condemning them, but for the purpose of doing good to them. Uh, I think that that's something we I, I'm glad that we've brought that out because I think there is a lot of people who who fail to recognize this ability of God and ability is not the right word. This this reality because of who God is, right, that God being a good God gives good gifts to people, even though those good gifts then serve later on to condemn them. Yes. And, and, you know, I've heard it. I've heard people push back me like, well, is it really a good gift if God knew it was going to condemn them? Well, yeah, yeah, it was like it, it, it was a good gift. It is a good gift that someone is allowed to continue living. Like that's a good thing. Even if uh, it's almost like, um, it's almost like the opposite of an, of, um, an overrealized eschatology where like, um, people will collapse everything into whether or not salvation obtains, right? If a person is not saved, then nothing in their life can ever be good for them. Because because ultimately nothing temporally matters if eternity is is damnation, and I, there's a certain logic of that, almost like numerically, like if you just count up all the moments of a person's life and then compare them to all the negative moments of eternity, like it's an infinite, infinitely small percentage of their life that they experience good things, but it's not zero percent, and that's my point is that even though yes, if you want to take it in these kind of like numeric terms. I guess like it's an infinitely small number of blessings, but to me that actually disregards the, just the sheer goodness of God in giving those blessings to someone. Exactly. Even though they, they not only do they deserve an infinitely small numeric percentage of blessings, they, they deserve zero blessings. So the fact that they have anything greater than zero actually is already a display of God's kindness and goodness and, and mercy and gentleness in the lives of one, of someone like that. So I think if we, if we kind of think through things in these categories, then I think this question kind of opens up. It becomes a little bit less of a sticky situation because it's, it's a logical question when you, you have some of these categories floating around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a good question. It's something we need to wrestle over. It's something we need to think about. But I ultimately, I think this category of common grace, or I like how the questioner kind of rephrased that to step outside of the language of grace, because again, grace has these sort of redemptive connotations that I don't know we always have to have there. But talking about God's kindness, God's mercy, God's goodness, God's patience, these are things that God demonstrates to all people. The right. Bible says he was patient with uh, you know, people who ended up falling away. He shows his, his patience to people who are not his people. Um, in a certain sense, he was patient with Pharaoh, even though he intended to make Pharaoh an example and to raise him up as a, as a vessel for destruction, he still showed patience to Pharaoh by giving him many warnings. Um, and, and we have to sort of paint a picture of God who these warnings actually kind of tie into what we talked about last, last week. We have to paint a picture of God who these, these warnings are totally illusory. They're totally false warnings that he gives to Pharaoh right. um, or in the prophets where, you know, he says, if you repent, then I will relent from the disaster that I'm going to bring upon you, knowing full well that the people will not repent and that he will not relent and that the disaster is coming. Um, we have to paint this picture of God who's kind of like 
it's like the Wizard of Oz. Like there's a guy behind the curtain, but we don't actually see anything about him. We just see this big, this big angry face in the sky that is, you know, spewing condemnation. Well, we have to understand that, yes, God's, God's ways are higher than our ways. We're not going to understand how these things interplay. But God reveals himself genuinely to us as a God who is kind and merciful and compassionate, even to his enemies, especially to his enemies, even to those who will always be his enemies. He's still merciful and kind and compassionate at times. And I think that's, if anything, that makes the gospel all the more glorious is that he is just that kind of God who shows patience yes. and forbearance and clemency to those who don't deserve it. Right, right on. And I would go even further to say, as we kind of close this out, like, let's put a really fine point on it. And I want to get to Matthew 8 in just a second here, that Jesus plays an embedded and impounded role in that, that again, that there are positive externalities, a spillover effect, if you will, from his atoning work that actually does result in even these, what we might consider extraordinary. Let's say like Jesus was miraculously healing those who were not elect. I still think the scripture provides us good reason to believe that that could be a form of common grace. Everybody's going to die again. So, you know, even Lazarus is raised, but dies again. Even if you're made sick, you will still break down and die from something else. If you're even healed from that original sickness. So let's, let's get to Matthew eight, these couple verses real quick as a way to kind of close this out so that we're, nobody thinks we're skirting from the question like, well, what's happening here is Jesus is the work of Jesus the merit that he is earning on behalf of the father. Is there somehow his, his role prevalent in the administration of common grace as we've defined it? So this is Matthew eight, just a three verses beginning in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, I actually love this. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve them. Now that's not just like great healing. Like, man, I feel much better. That's like, let let me get after helping everybody out like that. That's to go from like, zero to 100, you know, like, cause when you, when you start to feel better after a sickness, you don't immediately jump back into everything that you're doing when you felt your best. So this is an amazing, amazing miracle. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So of course I think we can say, and I'm not necessarily saying I agree with what you're saying. It's possible all these people were elect and they were, and they were healed in this way. There, there's nothing that would preclude us from concluding that. I don't think there's also anything equally that would preclude us from saying that they didn't all have to be elect. Right. And of course, when Matthew says like Christ healed every disease, really the meaning he's after there, and you can look at this in Luke as well, is that he healed like every kind of disease. Right. And we know that there were some that disease who were not cured, but there was no class of diseases. In other words, that was ever presented right. to Jesus, which he didn't just like straight get rid of. In fact, this, the corresponding passage in Luke, I almost like a little bit better because Luke says that Jesus uh, rebuked the fever, right? Like that, yeah. that is like amazing language. Like, and we're getting yeah. after the fact that fevers and other diseases, famine, pestilence, calamities, these are all like God's heralds and he can use them to execute his judgments. Actually, we did a whole episode on how COVID-19 is the judgment of God. If that sounds crazy, go back and listen to that. We don't have any time to unpack it here. We don't have time. (laughs) Um, But this means that God may extend, restrain, or recall these heralds whenever he pleases. And to me, in this passage, the fact that Christ is involved in this work of common grace is evidenced by the manner in which he often heals. You know, according to Luke, again, there's the laying on of hands. Here we have Christ touching. He's he's showing himself intimately involved 
in this healing work, which is always a benefit. But the thing we have to be careful of here is when he's quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah is not using that reference, talk about intertextuality. Isaiah is not using that reference to speak about physical healing, but about spiritual healing. Right. And Matthew is connecting these two for us to show how one is to lead us to the other. But in that way, then, just as we talked about common grace kindness leading to repentance here, I actually see the very same thing that it's very possible. And I think totally possible that some of these people were healed in such a way. So as to lead them to this conclusion that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, but it wasn't, it doesn't, the healing itself wasn't salvific, but it should point to that salvific means in Christ. Here he is intimately involved in that. What Christ has merited in his taking on flesh, being able then to heal that which which he has assumed, is also demonstrating the fact that he's intimately involved. And in this particular passage, being the administrator of common grace, if only that was healing for for a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to to close this out and and just give two more quick examples of this sort of, I'm almost going to call it like a spillover effect of common grace. Like God God is- Right. When we say God loved the world and we talk about how he loved the world so much or he, and not so much, like that's not how the word so works in there, but he loved the world in such a way that he saved part of it. Think about Lot in, um, in Sodom, right? He was already an object of God's grace, largely because of the covenant made with Abraham. So, so Lot himself was already kind of a spillover, but Lot flees, Lot flees Sodom after the angels drag him out of there because he was dragging his feet. And he lands in this little town called Zor. And one of the things we miss in this text, if we read over it too quickly, Zor was supposed to be destroyed. It was within the area of destruction that that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities was. And so this town was marked for destruction, right? So it was among the same evil that God was purging the land of in with Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that that town wasn't destroyed, Right. So all of the people in the town, whether we want to talk about Lot as the one, the one righteous person that God identified in Sodom and so rescued him or not, that town, the people in that town did not face the same temporal judgment that they had originally, kind of in air quotes, originally had been intended for because of the presence of Lot. So we can already see in, in the scriptures this sort of spillover effect of God's grace, his, his object of affection causing benefits to those around being true. It's not, it's not beyond the realm of imagination here. And now think about the, the, um, the, when Jesus uh, calms the seas, right? He does that proximately or most immediately for the benefit of his disciples, right? They come to him, they say, Lord, we're perishing. Do you not care? And he rebukes the sea. Interesting that he rebukes the sea, right? He rebukes the wind and the seas in order to save his disciples and to testify to them about his goodness and affection towards them. Well, there were probably other fishermen out on the ocean, right? There were other people around the area that would have been impacted by that storm. It's not like we can think of this or should think of this. We have no reason in the text to think of this as like this micro storm. That's just like just pounding down on this one little boat. But there was, there was people that lived on the ocean. There was people whose boats and docks and, and property and equipment may have been damaged by a, by a storm like this. Well, and this is speculative, of course, but it wasn't because Christ calmed the storm. And so he showed, he showed direct grace, special grace to his people. Right. And that had this spillover effect of common grace that sort of extended to those around him. Right. So I think, I think that when we start to look at this 
in that sort of picture that, that God works redemptively in the world. And because he works redemptively in the world, there is real concrete benefit that others who are not part of that redemptive object or that redemptive uh, intention that they gain benefits from that. And, and I think that that answers this question. It helps us to untie this knot a little bit. Common grace doesn't have to be its own special thing. It's not, it's not like God has all these different multiple works, right? God is one and his work is one. So when he does something in the world, it's not just going to be impacting this one little person or these right. one little groups of people. It necessarily spills over into all things. That's why, you know, in Colossians, Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to him. We don't have to try to parse out what the various meanings of the New Testament use of cosmos is in that. Like we can just say like God was acting in Christ to bring a people to himself. And that had implications for the whole world, including the people who were not yes. among those people. Right on. And I think as reformed Christians, we would do well to maybe think about that and meditate that a, a little bit because we sometimes can almost take on a hyper Calvinist bent where we think that God only acts in the world towards the elect. And he doesn't do anything outside of that except judge and condemn. Now he does judge and condemn. That's that's reality. That's true. But that's not all that God does in in reference to the reprobate or to the non-elect. There's so much beautiful condensation. 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 There's beautiful condensation in that. There's beautiful condensation. It's all condensed down. But this idea, of course, Christ coming down off the mountain, even in that passage you just talked about, literally coming down off the mountain, seeing right. his disciples in this tormented rowing on the Sea of Galilee, he comes down, he calms the storm, he sets them at peace. And when he does this, you know, I've just totally wrapped up in this idea of Christ, of course, recapitulating all of humankind that he is distilled down in his essence all of humanity, he's living the human experience as it was meant to be. How could there not be great spillover effects for almost yeah. all people because he's doing that? That redemption is so grandiose. And again, I'm, I want everybody to hear me properly. What we're definitely saying is, what we say, like particular special grace is still reserved for the elect. Right. And we can say that full stop and at the same time say, man, but what Christ has done in, again, taking all of Israel, all the natural man and pushing it out so that he is living the perfect life in obedience, like tassels and beard and obedience. And, you know, think about the fact that like we said before Christ, all of his, everything that he did, the motive was absolutely pure. How could there not be benefits yeah. for all mankind? Because he is redeeming things, all things, and especially elect onto himself. But that right. redemption is just, is bigger than even us in that sense. It's so much bigger. So like, yeah, any, you'd have to go through and say like, well, any positive externality, we'd have to eliminate everything. And just the, the fun example of saying like, well, is it possible there was somebody whose boat wasn't destroyed that night because the sea was calmed? Like right. there's Christ doing something for somebody that's, you know, down the chain, so to speak, that we might not normally think of. Or we'd say, yeah, that was just, wasn't that just nice of God? Like, yeah. he, you know what I mean? Wasn't it just nice that he did that? Yeah. And it was, and it is. So it is. He, he does those kinds of things. And Jesus, I would say, is intimately involved in those things as well. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good a place to wrap it up as any. One thing we want to point our listeners to, we don't we don't often do this, but uh, there was a great mega feed 
of uh, all sorts of shows. We got Baptists, we got Presbyterians, we got some three forms of unity guys. Um, There's people who hold very, uh, very uh, specific views on the importance of masking and vaccination. You'll find that on our show. There's people who are not so (laughs) in favor of that kind of stuff on other shows. But what we all have in common is that we seek to glorify God by providing good, reformed theological content to help edify Christians. Right on. So you can check out the, the various shows we have in the society of Reform Podcasters by going to Reform Podcasts. The plural on that is really important. Don't go to reformpodcast.com. That's a weird site. Uh, reformpodcasts.com. You can also search for the Society of Reform Podcasters in any podcast feed application that you might use, and you should be able to find the mega feed. I will warn you, there's a lot of content. Oh, it's so, so good, uh, though. So maybe just unsubscribe from everything else and subscribe to that one feed, <laughs> but you will definitely be edified. Um, you know, I listen to every single show that comes out on the, the um, Society here, and it's enough. Like, there's, there's more than enough good content um, to fill your ears. And you know, I really am. I really am built up in the body of Christ by listening to these other guys reflect on things and talk about what's going on in their lives and just preach the gospel in their own way on their own shows. Yeah, jam some more good podcasts in your ears. We sometimes forget that maybe not everybody realizes that we're part of a podcast family. And so, if you want to meet some of our cousins, brothers, and sisters, aunts, and uncles, they're all available for you on reformedpodcasts.com. It's true. Well, Jesse. You know what we always say, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Brotherhood.